Hello, thank you for listening to this, the first episode of Back to the Source. Just uh, a quick note from me before uh, we get into the episode and um, say so that this episode was actually recorded a couple of years back in at the end of 2019 when this podcast was first conceived. Um, it's been a bit of a, a pause since then, but good things come to those who wait. And yeah, so the, the, the format and the structure of this uh, episode may differ from later ones, but uh, it's a great conversation with Ben Randy, and I hope you enjoy. Hello there, and welcome to the first podcast of Back to the Source. I am currently recording this in Jinja, in Uganda, which, as some of you may know, is the source of the River Nile. So, uh, a good way to kick things off. So, what is this episode going to be about? We are going to look be looking into an area of, um, of gold production in the Democratic Republic of Congo. We will be specifically looking at the eastern part of the DRC in two provinces, which are called North and South Kivu. Principally, we will be looking at the lives of artisanal miners um, who who mine this gold. Uh, An artisanal miner can be defined as a subsistence miner. Um, They're independent, they're not employed by by uh, larger or smaller mining companies and often their activities are non-mechanised, so they would use tools such as picks and shovels to carry out their, their activities. A couple of months ago, I was very fortunate to get on the phone with Ben Raddy. Ben is a fellow in development studies at LSE. He spent about 15 years working in international development, um, eight of which living in the DRC. He was based in Kinshasa, but travelled a lot to the eastern part of the country. So we will be discussing a variety of things, one of which will be his uh, documentary which he he co-produced called We Will Win Peace, which focuses on kind of the impact of Western advocacy on communities such as those artisanal mining communities in the eastern DRC. Yeah, we're going to be discussing a range of things from kind of a hierarchy of, of these kind of small-scale gold mines, who are who are the big players. We're going to be discussing how us as consumers can kind of make sure we select or kind of choose the right uh, ethically sourced gold. Um, we'll be discussing this documentary and also um, we had a, we had an interesting chat about kind of the role, kind of how child labour is portrayed in, in communities such as these. So without further ado, we will get on with it. Could you maybe you could just give us a like a profile of what a uh, artisanal gold miner looks like in in the Eastern DRC? So the first thing to say is the Eastern DRC artisanal gold mining is the largest in terms of the number of people employed in it in the in the Kivu region in North and South Kivu, at least probably also if you were to include Ituri and Maniema, around. 
four out of five people working in artisanal mining are estimated to be working in gold and you have a few hundred thousand people of course it's all very approximate but a few hundred thousand people thought to be working in the sector um, so it's, it's a very large employer the average artisanal gold miner working in the sector of course there's huge huge variance but mostly it would be people from rural families from rural backgrounds from rural areas and often and again of course not always they are amongst some of the poorest or perhaps most vulnerable in those rural areas particularly from in the sense of being landless or not having very much productive land, at least that's been a finding from my own research, is that a lot of the people, a lot of the workers who go to work in the mines might not have uh, the ability uh, to meet their subsistence needs and the social reproduction of the household um, through through their own land or livestock ownership. And so they need to seek off-farm sources of employment and revenue. And of course, artisanal mining being a cash economy uh, is is often the best way for them to be able to do this. Okay, yeah. Um, so, I mean, it, it essentially, it is it's driven by by poverty then, um, rather than kind of um, lo- you know a high chance of, of of earning lots of money. Well, I think it's both, and this is a big argument in the literature: this push push or pull, whether people are pushed into artisanal mining through poverty or pulled into it through opportunity, which is in some ways a little bit of a false. A false binary because one doesn't preclude the other but so I think there's a lot of money being made in artisanal mining by Congolese and we can talk a bit about that if you like by both particularly by what I would call the managerial class who make very significant profits out of artisanal gold mining so I think and, and often the, that managerial class tend to be from slightly wealthier backgrounds slightly wealthier rural backgrounds because you need more capital and finance to get started if you're managing and overseeing production in a, in a mine site. So I think there's a combination of both. But yes, I think it is fair to say that part of the growth and popularity of artisanal mining has been driven by, in the Eastern Congo and I think elsewhere across Africa, driven by collapse of subsistence capacity, um, structural adjustments over the eight, 1980s and 1990s, uh, and the absence of uh, a functioning formal economy for many people uh, is, is certainly one of the reasons. You know, often lots of people you talk to in the mine sites will say they're here because they have, you know, they have nothing else to do or they have no other options. Um, sure. So from that perspective, yes, um, that that is, you know, poverty and lack of other opportunities um, is a significant driver as to why they're they're doing what they're doing. So in, in terms of the, the structure within artisanal mining in the eastern DRC, if we start at the bottom the, uh, uh, in terms of the miners who actually go underground to, to extract the, the gold, um, what is there a typical day for them? So the shaft work, so yeah, as you say, that there are the miners who go down. I mean, I think there are two categories of workers broadly at the artisanal gold sites. There are the site work, what I would call the site workers and the shaft workers. So you have the people who are working in and around the mine site, but not going underground, who I would call the site workers. And then you have the shaft workers, as you say, who are the, the people who are going down underground to extract the ore. And so for those shaft workers, they are typically working quite long shifts of 
six, eight, ten hours a day, um, equipped with iron hammers, chisels, and headlamps, most usually, and not much else. The shafts are very narrow that they have to go down. There's not much room to maneuver. And once you go down them, if you get past 20 to 30 meters in depth, once the out, you know, the light from the outside world disappears, um, the air thins quite dramatically. And just being down there without even laboring, um, you become quite short of breath. So actually doing the work down there is, is very demanding physically. And you appreciate that when you're down there and you watch what, what they're doing. Uh, and it's also, of course, very dangerous, um, particularly during the, the rainy season. Often you have mine collapses due to the, the weight of the water weighing down and so or could just be simply poor construction or often you might have deaths from asphyxiation if the oxygen has not been circulating and so it is a very dangerous dangerous form of employment and you see media stories in the Congo and elsewhere on quite a regular basis and you hear of people uh, of these pit collapses and of and of deaths and that's something that if I spend a few months in a mine site, generally it will it will happen within the time that I'm there, or there will have been a story before or afterwards about that happening. So it, it is it's certainly dangerous. It's certainly physically demanding, and uh, and for that reason, you know, not everybody is prepared to go underground, and that's why some people actually choose to work as a site worker, doing some of the labour outside, even though it might be slightly less well remunerated. They 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 prefer the the lower risk. I see, yeah. And and for the guys who do go down into the shafts, um, how do they cope kind of mentally and, and physically with just going it down there day in, day out? Uh, yeah, absolutely. I think mentally, at least from the, the miners that I've spoken to, the general impression I get is that it's something that you become hardened to with time. Uh, the first time, of course, being the most difficult and then Gradually over time, I suppose with anything, the more you do something, uh, the more you become accustomed to it. But I think, you know, and that's why lots of people, you know, can't take that or don't, you know, choose not to, to ever take that step and go down and work outside. Um, so I think for those who do it, it's something that they uh, they get accustomed to over time. Um, some will use alcohol or or cannabis as a way to to numb themselves. Um, or to uh, to help with that process and but then I think physically absolutely I think you know the life expectancy when you when you're down there and you realize you know how much you know the, the air quality down there is so poor and the labor is so physically demanding that I think uh, both in terms of respiratory and back problems are the two the two ones that come up a lot and it's that's you know generally why you don't see many old people down the shafts it's, it's very much a young a, a young person's game most people are late teens early mid late 20s and once you get into your 30s 40s and above it's quite rare to see people who are doing those long days uh, for that reason um and, and do they work in teams yes it's very organized very regulated of course, each site has its own particularities, but generally you'll have a shaft managed. Generally, you'll have teams of anything between 10 and 100 or even a few hundred people, depending on the size of the shaft, because the sizes of the shaft vary enormously. 
But generally, the organizational structure is you have a shaft manager who has either provided the initial financial investment um, himself, and I'm using the term himself, you, you do find on rare occasions there are some women who are doing shaft work, but generally um, this work is reserved exclusively in the Eastern Congo. Uh, the shaft work itself is reserved exclusively for men. You, you'll find women working as traders or working in other jobs around the mines, but uh, it's quite rare to find women who are actually working down the mines themselves. So, yeah, you have a shaft manager who's known as a, a PDG, a President Directeur General, uh, which is a chief executive officer, essentially. So they're known as PDG. And they're the ones who finance um, the construction of the mine, who maintain the shafts, and they mobilize and organize labor within the production process. And so within that team, then, they will have, let's say it's a team of 20 people, you'll have various different specialist positions within that team in terms of what different people are doing, um, uh, whether they're construct, whether they're doing shaft construction and maintenance, whether they're um, down the mines extracting the ore, whether they're carrying the bags, or, or whether they're doing something else. So there are a range of different jobs jobs within that, um, and and they're organised and work within quite quite tight knit teams under the shaft manager's supervision. Okay, and um, where do 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 what role do do women play in in the whole process? Because when when I was around artisanal mining sites, you know there there are lots of women um, kind of on the surface partaking in like the the economy that the mining provides. Yes, so I would say on the whole, at least from my experience of of the sites that I've been to, there has been. I would say women are generally subjugated to the lower levels of the labor hierarchy in artisanal mining, restricted to those lower levels, often working as they might be ore crushers. So they might be mamontwangas, which is um, crushing the, the rocks that come out of the shafts. Uh, so that's quite heavy manual labor. Or they might be carrying water in uh, bidon, uh, in water carriers to and from various locations in the mine site to help with the treatment process and then of course you have lots of women who work around as petty traders selling um, produce from from the farm or selling uh, selling other bits of food uh, peanuts uh, and bananas and so on to the miners themselves but that's not to say that you don't find women in other in other positions you I mean there's Congolese, um, a Congolese professor in Bukavu did her thesis recently on the role of women in artisanal mining. She could speak to this much better than I could, Marie Rose uh, Bashara. But we do find some women working as Congolese traders in quite powerful positions, uh, very well financed. But as I say, generally you don't find them working in the shafts. And that's often can be related to, or people use, uh, some beliefs around the fact that if women approach the shaft, they say that they will chase the gold veins away. And so that, but it, I mean, it's, it's essentially, I think, drawing on uh, different traditional belief sources as a way, also functioning within a deeply patriarchal society. And of course, the outcome is very much often to restrict and control the spaces in which women can or can't move within that labour hierarchy. Um. 
and kind of above the shaft managers um, who who exists above them is that that where the traders then come into play and is this still in the local area of the mine or, or when does this gold for example start to move off site and enter kind of a, a, a more a larger supply chain yeah so once once the golds once the ore's been extracted and um, they've 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 got the the gold out of the ore, then yes, it starts to move off the mine, and you have two levels, and this is where the traders come in. So you have two levels of traders, uh, at least in in the Kivu region. You have petit négociant and grand négociant, small traders and big traders, and often the shaft managers can also play the role of being small traders themselves. But generally, what will happen is the gold will get sold at the level of the mine site to a small trader and then the small trader will then travel to let's say it's in south kivu they'll travel to the provincial capital city of bukavu where they will then sell it on to a big trader and that big trader might either sell their gold well three options i suppose they might either sell their gold to a local jeweler and interestingly there is uh a jewelry industry both in the Congo and in in Eastern Congo in and around Bukavu and Goma and in neighboring cities neighboring countries in and around Bujumbura in Burundi for example you have quite a vibrant uh, local jewelry industry so they might sell their gold directly to the jewelers they might also sell it to refineries based in the Eastern Congo who will then uh, smelt it into gold bars or they'll smuggle it out of the country and then where it goes next, you generally then can trace, you know, there's a flow of money. I just described the gold moving from the mine site out of the country. And then there'll be a flow of money in the opposite direction, going through all of those different people who are often involved in interdependent relationships from a refinery to a big trader, to a small trader, to a shaft manager at a mine site. There could be a whole line of pre-financing uh, and mutual dependency relates related to financing that that binds them together okay and, and you you touched on the on the smuggling uh predominantly they smuggle because um they're likely to get better prices in neighboring countries like rwanda or burundi or uganda is that correct yes i think that that's the the main reason is essentially they can earn more money from smuggling it out of the country because precisely that the the export taxes are higher in the congo than they are in other countries and so particularly i mean uganda now has a refinery actually uh, just built a refinery a year or two ago where a, you know a lot of gold is now being smuggled to and then most of this then goes through to refineries in dubai where it's refined to the minimum purity required for sale on the international market and dubai is the destination for around 70 percent of the artisanal gold produced in the congo and it's home itself to a, a largely unregulated gold industry worth around 70 or 80 billion dollars. And Congolese gold traders have been doing business there since the 1960s. Um, and then from Dubai, the gold then gets exported primarily to Indian and Swiss based refiners, which comprise the majority of the world's refineries who are selling gold to multinationals and banks. Yeah, I see. Um because, I mean, you, you were involved in the documentary We Will uh, Win Peace. So could you kind of explain 
maybe slightly a bit about the making of that and and also in light of that what 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 can companies do what can um consumers do over here to try and ensure they aren't buying conflict minerals or 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 anything like that yeah the film so yeah the film came out in 2015 but it was a process that began a few years prior to that and the main point we were trying to get across was the difficulty of doing effective advocacy from the US or the UK on a conflict situation, a very complex conflict that's happening very far, far away from where that advocacy is taking place uh, and perhaps not always based on a full understanding of what's going on. And what we were looking at within that particular film was the effects of this advocacy movement around conflict minerals very much led by, particularly in the US, by an advocacy organisation called the Enough Project, who were trying to mobilise in particular students on university campuses in America to apply pressure at Congress and in Washington and the Senate to produce legislation which is which tries which essentially tries to make it more difficult and to put pressure on multinationals who are sourcing minerals in their supply chains and using them in their products to try and make sure that the minerals that they're sourcing are not contributing to conflict in other parts of the world and particularly in the in the eastern congo and neighboring countries but the problem the essential problem that came up was that the link between artisanal mining and conflict has been made a lot of focus has been made on that link, the idea that armed groups in the Eastern Congo are fighting each other for access to and control over mineral resources in which rape is a weapon to access those resources and to subdue local populations. And this idea became very popular, very dominant in this advocacy campaign. And so this is very much what drove the legislation, but I think what got left out of that whole discussion and what got left out of that whole conversation was not necessarily that this claim is false. Of course, it's argued a degree to which it's a significant driver of conflict and how important it is as a driver. And many conflict experts that we would spoke to and interviewed would say that it's never been at the cause of the conflict, either historically or today, even though it's true that to a degree the revenue that comes from the mining activity can help perpetuate or finance what's going on. Um, the bit that got left out of that whole picture was essentially that while having these links to conflict, it is also the most important livelihood and source of revenue after agriculture in the region for hundreds of thousands of people and therefore millions of people in terms of the families who depend on that revenue. And so if you go after that sector and you try and put pressure on the exports um, and put pressure on what's being produced then you also risk cutting those people off some of the most vulnerable uh, and some of the poorest people in an already uh, poor and vulnerable region from their only access to uh, employment and income and that's exactly what happened because as Jason Stern said to us when we interviewed Jason Stern a research a Congo researcher said to us when we interviewed him for the film if you're going to make it a requirement for Western multinationals to trace 
the origin of their minerals, the first thing you need to make sure to ask yourself is, is that possible? And in the case of the conflict minerals legislation that passed in the US, that wasn't that wasn't the case when it was passed. And it's still mostly not the case today, coming up for almost a decade later. In other words, even if Western multinationals wanted to trace the origin of their minerals to Congo, they're not able to because those systems have not been put in place, certainly not for gold, which is the most important mineral in the region. And it's still very limited opportunity to do that. So what do you do? You essentially pull out and you stop buying. If you're not able to trace it, but you're facing possibly either bad publicity or reputational damage, then you stop sourcing from the region completely. And this is what happened. And so there was a period of time, particularly around 2010, 11 and 12, when there were very few buyers left for uh, any of the minerals coming out of the Congo, and this caused a lot of a lot of harm and a lot of damage to those those local economies that depended upon artisanal mining. And so I think there was just this level of nuance and this almost paradoxical relationship around artisanal mining, where on the one hand uh, it has provided some revenue and financing to conflict, but on the on the other side it is also uh, a huge employer. And then, you know, the complexity of how to deal with that with quite blunt legislation coming through the US in the time, I think, uh, failed to grapple with it adequately. And yeah, the consequences were, were quite were were quite damaging as documented in that film. Yeah. And and I guess that, that extends to the whole issue around child labour as well, which the the press often pick up on. But in reality, you know, ch- children do form a part of the, the the mining process in Eastern DRC due to there being no other means to, to earn a, a living. Is that what you found while you were out there? Yeah, I think the child labour that was, as you say, came up in a, there was an amnesty report recently around cobalt in Katanga where you used to work, uh, which I think got a lot of, and that's very much been the attention with these cobalt supply chains from the Katang, former Katanga region around child labour. And yes, the, that is that is something you encounter at most mine sites, but I think you need, again, a more culturally uh, nuanced reading of what's going on there, which is often that children are going to work in the mines during the school holidays with their dad or their uncle, and they're not necessarily involved in the most dangerous forms of labor in the mine. In fact, I would say it's quite rare that they're involved in the most dangerous forms of labor in the mine. So, uh, and often it will be doing certain jobs around and outside of the shafts, not always, of course. And then the income that they earn from that enables them to pay their school fees uh, and for their family, you know, meet their family's needs. So the difficulty is if you try and say, and, and it's not just in the mines that children are working in Congo. Children, like in many poor countries, children are involved in all sorts of forms of labour. And so you have children working in the mines in Congo, but you also have children working in more or less every economic activity and sector in the country. And so it's a systemic, ingrained, structural problem related to being a low-income country in the 21st century. Uh, and so the problem is if you take and this is the problem with just targeting sector specific issues in the mining sector is that those issues don't just affect the mining sector they affect the economy as a whole and that goes for 
the financing that goes to armed groups from the mining sector, that armed groups are also taking revenue from timber production, from charcoal, from cannabis, from anything that goes crosses a roadblock. And so these are, and it's the same thing with child labor. And so the problem is when you try and take a sector specific approach, and for example, this happened in, in South Kiva in one instance where they, they banned children from the mine site, well then you essentially just, you don't, it's, it's not solving a problem because the problem is essentially the Congo is, uh, is generally a national level problem related to uh, the Congolese economy. You're just going to push the children out of that mine site. They're either going to go into different forms of labour, um, or they're going to have no, they're going to have no or less remunerative alternatives. And so, you're creating more problems than you're you're solving. And so, I think it needs. It's. I think if you go after child labour in mind, it's a very narrow view, and I think it's a very skewed view, which I think leads to some unintended and, in certain cases, unhelpful outcomes. And I think it'd be better to look at things on a more macro holistic level uh, to try and understand these are symptoms you know child labor is a symptom of the congolese economy it's not necessarily you don't need to chase the symptoms you need to try and chase and identify what the causes are and i think that's often where lots of the analysis is is wanting definitely yeah definitely um yeah well ben that's that's great yeah thank you I hope you enjoyed the first episode of Back to the Source. A massive thanks to Ben Radley for, for chatting to me about gold mining in, uh, in the Eastern DRC, um, and especially for being such an engaging and interesting guest and managing to convey uh, what can be a very complex topic in, in very clear terms. So thanks, Ben. Yeah, I guess the aim of, uh, of this podcast is really that next time you uh, decide to splash out on some gold rings bracelets jewelry teeth whatever whatever you fancy you know lend a thought to where that gold may have come from and um and it may well have potentially come from the eastern drc in other news this being the first podcast i would like to extend some shout outs to people who have helped me uh, get this show on the road firstly to henry middleditch the extremely talented musician who is the man behind the Back to the Source theme tune. So if anyone's after a theme tune, he's your man. Um, and secondly, the equally as talented artist Storm Athill, um, who has crafted the Back to the Source logo, which hopefully you would have seen when going on to iTunes. So massive thanks to Storm as well. The next episode should be out in a couple of weeks, and you can expect to hear a chat about uh, where food comes from and and what the implications of that are. But in the meantime, thanks again for listening, and I will hopefully see you next time. Cheers. Bye-bye.